morning, church. Everybody doing all right this morning? Good, that worked. All right. All right. As Matt said, my name is Derek, Derek Bass. I'm one of the leaders here at Liberty. Um, probably better known as Elizabeth's husband, as she does a lot in kids' work, or Elijah, Caleb, Micah, or Anna's father. As you uh, have children, you begin to be known by being their parent rather than who you, who you actually are. So anyway, that's a, that's a bit of introduction for me. Um, you should have gotten on your seat uh, a handout for this morning's sermon on gospel-driven love. I am uh, slowly coming around to using technology, so my words or the words of my outline will not magically appear. They very unmagically appeared on your seat to you uh, in an antiquated handout, but that's, uh, that's good enough. That gives you something to look at. <clears throat> All right, well, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this time that we can look at your word this morning. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you are a, a talking God, and that you have spoken most fully in and through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be magnified this morning as we look at your word. We pray that you would speak through me, speak to us. Woo us, help us, God, to see your majesty, your greatness, the amazing nature of your grace and your love to us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, no word, idea, or theme is more prominent in songs, poetry, movies, really all literature than love. And yet it's perhaps the most confused or misunderstood thing in life. I think we all desire to love, to be loved, a longing for community, a longing for acceptance, and perhaps even a fear that if people really knew who we were, then they wouldn't love us at all. But we regularly posture ourselves or you know, in my native America, I might say we, we, we put our best foot forward in order to be accepted, to be liked, even loved. I mean, we can look no further than social media these days. You see just an endless void online of a longing for acceptance, approval, and ultimately love. And Facebook capitalizes on this. We might say this, this narcissism. I recently read an article about Facebook and, and how their aim is to just keep getting us to come back again and again and again. You put up a post and you want to see if anybody's liked it or who's liked it. And they've actually developed different algorithms to withhold likes so that you'll keep coming back and seeing who it is that's, that's tuning in and giving you a little love. We live in a world where love is often described or defined or understood as a romantic emotion at best, or at worst, a, a, selfless, a selfishly perverse desire for someone else. Our love is broken. 
It's usually codependent. That is to say, we love others for what they can do for us. So we're really not loving them. We're, we're loving them for something we can get from them, which means that we're, we're really loving ourselves. This, this self-love, this absorption with ourselves can only be dealt with adequately and sufficiently when it's unseated, unseated by a greater love. Our study thus far in 1 Peter has focused straight away on God's amazing mercy, grace, and his love for we who deserve no love at all. God's love is like a boomerang, right? It goes out from him in his, in his sending of Jesus. It accomplishes its purposes to grab us, to woo us, and to bring us back to him. God's love is aimed at a broken, sin-filled world, utterly in rebellion to him in order to enable us to love as he loves. Frankly, it enables us to become truly human to become what he intended us to be from the get-go. So you'll see there on your, your, your sermon outline, the main idea I think of this passage we're looking at this morning, and thus the main idea of the sermon is this. Because God has graciously and lovingly given us new life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must love our brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly. Now, that's fairly wordy. That's kind of me, if you know me. So here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a shorter, compact version. He loved us, so love one another. Or you can just default to the sermon title, Gospel-Driven Love. So we'll look at this today really under two points. The first one you see there on the outline is because you are a Christian. Now, that may not be true of everybody in here this morning, but the Scriptures are addressing the believing community of God, right? And, and the assumption is that when Peter's writing this letter, he's writing to the church, he's writing to believers. So because you are a Christian is point number one. And really the main idea, the main thrust of this whole passage, it's the only main verb in this paragraph, in these two verses, is love. The command to love one another. But that command is based and driven by um, these two, these two, uh, well, I'll get into that in a second. Uh, so why don't we look at the text, we'll read through the passage, and then we'll march through it. So look with me at 1 Peter uh, 1, 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the main idea, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So as we've been marching through 1 Peter, uh, back in verse 1, he starts by talking about how God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's talking about what he has done for us, how he's preserving us, how he is preserving for us in heaven a salvation that is to come, and that even now the believers that Peter was writing to were suffering for their faith 
and that God was working that to purify their faith, that they might long for him, developing their desire and their longing for the Lord. And last week in verse 13, Matt's sermon turns the corner from the indicative of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, to commands, calls, imperatives for how we are to respond in light of the gospel. So last week we we heard about our need to set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the coming of Christ. Second, the call to be holy. And then third, how we are to conduct ourselves. And this morning's passage, verses 22 through 25, continues the commands flowing from the grace of God and his love toward us in the gospel, as we've just read. And the main thrust, the main idea comes there in the second half of verse 22, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the second point. We'll get to that in just a second. But sandwiching around that imperative to love is the basis, the grounds for it. So he begins by saying, having purified, or because you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's a ground. That's the the how, that's the why we are to love one another. And the idea here, this may sound sound like interesting uh, it may sound a little interesting to you this morning, this, this, him saying, because you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth. It may sound a little bit to you this morning like a works righteousness. Uh, it, may, it might even sound to you like he's talking about, the, the, if you're familiar with systematic theology, the idea of ongoing sanctification. But that's not the point at all. He's speaking here categorically of through faith in Christ, we have been brought into this category of purification. We've purified ourselves by obedience to the truth, right? It's another way of saying, um, yeah, it's another way of of saying uh, faith, but, but one that drives home that believing in Jesus isn't merely an academic exercise, an intellectual uh, event, but that it's a relational, personal thing. Right? We tend to think, sadly, that, that faith is just a decision we make in our mind intellectually. But all throughout Scripture, you have this idea of a tight connection between faith and obedience. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he has this phrase in, in Romans 1.5 and then in 16.26, where he's talking about his apostleship. The purpose of his ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, that is an obedience that flows from faith. So the idea being that obedience or or faith is the root and obedience is the fruit. And this has a purpose, having purified yourself for a sincere brotherly love. So this is the purpose he's talking about here of our salvation, a sincere, or you might say woodenly, an unhypocritical love. A a, a love where there's no games, there's no pretending, we're not trying to act like we're something that we're not. We We don't try to tell a selective narrative about our lives. It's not sort of the, the Facebook. I just realized the other day, because people are always writing like hashtag no filter. I, I 
didn't know what they were talking about. And then I, I asked my wife, it's like, I know this person has acne, but when their pictures are up on Facebook, they have the clearest complexion, what's going on? And she says, Derek, that's a filter, they're using a filter. It's like, oh. So that's sort of how you know, we can function, whether on Facebook or the way we might tell our own story, we don't want to tell the bad bits. We don't want to tell the parts that put us in a negative light. We want to touch up the photograph. We want to put our best foot forward. We want people to like us, to love us, to accept us, right? But the love that the gospel calls us to is an unhypocritical, a sincere love. We're not playing games, we're seeking to be authentic. Now a word about authenticity, we do live in an age where in some churches authenticity has been taken to an extreme where people are just talking about some of the sin that they're committing flagrantly and it's like, man, I'm just being real. Well, authenticity should lead to authentic repentance as well. So we want to be real, we want to be authentic, but we need to be clear that the gospel doesn't give any recourse for just sinning flagrantly and then Using it, a guise is just sort of, I'm just being real. So one of the grounds here, the reason why we're Christians is because we've purified ourselves through obedience to the gospel. Fundamentally, that means we're trusting in and seeking to obey our Lord and our master. We've been set apart for him. And then secondly, in verses 23 through 25, look at those, look at that again. This is, this is the second thing that grounds the command to love one another. He says, since you have been born again. And that's the main idea. And everything else is just really unpacking this idea of born again or being born anew. He says, born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. Through the living and abiding Word of God. And then here in verse 24, he introduces a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word, the word of the Lord remains forever. So you, you hear the abiding, the permanence of God's word. God's word doesn't fail. Human flesh falls, human flesh fails, but God's word is a living word, it's an abiding word. And then Peter jumps out of that quotation and he says, this word, and he means this word from Isaiah 40, verses six and eight, he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now it's interesting, if you're familiar with Isaiah at all, um, chapter 40 begins God speaking into the future and to his people, like 150 years in advance, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to those who will be exiled, who have experienced the judgment of God and he's proclaiming a glorious salvation through judgment. And, and, and as Isaiah 40 through 66 continues to cascade between the Jerusalem that was and the Jerusalem that will be, the new heavens and the new earth, Sort of at the center of it is Isaiah 53, which describes the death of Messiah to come. As Isaiah talks about, all we like sheep have gone astray. We, we've turned everyone to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And in language that is powerfully descriptive, describes how Jesus would go to the cross some 700 years in advance. 
In fact, he's going to pick up language in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this word, this word of the gospel that was preached beforehand has now come to fruition. Jesus has come on the scene. The Messiah has come. The gospel, the imperishable word that brings new life is the message of Christ's death and miraculous resurrection from the dead. This is the message of Christ's miraculous birth. Jesus, the Son of God, leaving glory, we just celebrated, becoming a man, living a sinless life, perfectly living, loving, obeying the Father, and then going to the cross where God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that he might make sinners like you and me the very righteousness of God in him. Jesus took all the sins of his people that would believe in him. He took all their sins to himself on the cross. And then the father poured out his unimaginable wrath, the wrath, the judgment that we deserve, he poured it out on his son. You may remember the story of him in the garden saying, take this cup, the cup of God's wrath from me, but not my will, yours be done. Well, Jesus goes to the cross and he drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the bitter dregs for us. And at the same time, at the same time that he is hanging naked on the cross, looking defeated, looking despised, the scriptures say that he is simultaneously crushing the serpent's head. He is stripping naked the powers and authorities in the heavenly places and marching them naked through the streets of Rome, showing himself to be the king, the victorious king. And this idea of the gospel being news or good news in Isaiah 52, it talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This idea in the ancient Near East is there are runners coming from the battlefield and they're bringing news of the war. And the idea is Jesus has conquered. He has destroyed the devil. He has broken the back of sin, death and hell, and won salvation for us. He has won reconciliation for us to God. He has won release, as Matt preached last week, ransom, the idea of being ransomed. We're no longer in bondage to sin. And he has, through his resurrection, he has won new life for us. Life from the grave. And this imperishable seed of the gospel is the gospel we proclaim. It's the gospel that has life-giving power. Gospel proclamation calls life into existence. You can think about just a few other passages that unpack this theology of the preached word. Romans 10, 17, Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You, you cannot please God without faith, but you cannot have faith without hearing the gospel preached and God graciously granting you faith. 
2 Corinthians 3.18 says, using creation language, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, right? The idea is thinking about salvation and conversion, new creation, what God did in Genesis 1 when he said, let light shine out of darkness is what he does through the preached word when somebody hears with faith the gospel and believes on Jesus Christ, their new creation immediately. And then the language here in 1 Peter is that of the gospel being a seed that's sown in our hearts. And it's effective and it germinates to new life. The divine life of God in the soul of man So we're talking about new creation here. In the first creation, God made the world as his cosmic temple, and then he created humanity as his priest kings to dwell there, to fill the earth with his glory. In the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, it's the other way around. God is creating first his people anew through the gospel, and then we'll finally and fully make all things new. New creation begins with us. And that's what's taking place in the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel makes us new people, a new humanity restored to the image of Christ and God. We become then the light of the world, a city set on a hill, God's new humanity. Now, Matt mentioned last week in his sermon that, you know, preaching has kind of fallen on hard times. People think it's outdated antiquated, don't do it. And yet, you know, the world's preaching at us through advertisements and in every other way to get us to do different things. But just applicationally, I want us to really consider here three things, they're on, they're on your handout in, in regard to preaching. And I know I, I, I always feel this like, okay, I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher, so you know, you could be sitting out there saying, of course, you're trying to validate preaching. You know, you, you need a job. No, no. First thing I, I want us is don't miss the miracle. Don't miss the miracle of the new birth. Yeah, it does seem kind of strange that the, the means by which God has chosen to create a people is through preaching. Now, he did choose to create worlds and, and, and galaxies in the cosmos through speaking. But don't miss the miracle of the new birth, the life of God and the soul of man. Conversion is God coming to live in us. It's God in Christ rolling back the curse of sin, restoring us to God categorically and beginning progressively to make us more and more like Jesus. And he does this through preaching. Secondly, to trust the power of the gospel. Prioritize preaching. We need to declare it clearly, but we need to trust in the declaration of the gospel, that God is sowing the imperishable seed of the gospel and did, and did not buy the lie that preaching is passe. And then, and then third, I say there's helpful hints for processing conversion. Maybe you're here and you don't know why, but all of a sudden you're kind of becoming more and more interested in the gospel. You're becoming more and more interested in Jesus. I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Well, we say, well, you believe in Jesus. You trust him. You obey him. You live for him. It's his grace. He saves you. It's his love. I mean, all these things, but you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. but how do I know? 
How do I know? Right, you listen to one person's story of testimony, you know, and it, it, it doesn't sound quite like another person's story of testimony. It's interesting, you read like the book of Acts and Paul tells his testimony and he's walking to Damascus to throw Christians in jail to, 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 to uh, ostensibly to kill Christians and he hears a voice of Jesus from heaven, he falls down, he sees a light from heaven. And you listen to some people's testimonies and it's kind of like that. And then you listen to other people's testimonies and, and they're like, you know, I know I'm a Christian because God has changed me and I love him and I used to not love him, but I can't really pinpoint where and when that happened. And so you have these passages that describe conversion, like the 2 Corinthians 3.18, the one who said that light shone out of darkness is shown in our hearts. It kind of has the idea of this whoosh, you know, which is kind of how I came to faith. And then here, the, 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 the imagery is that of a, a seed sown. And the imperishable versus perishable is, you know, that of uh, human seed when a man and a woman come together and life is created, but that's perishable life. And just like with a woman, she might not know immediately when a life is conceived in her. You know, sometimes it's quickly, but other times it could be a couple of weeks and little things start happening, little signs of life going on in the womb start happening. One of the things that would always happen for my wife is this supersonic ability to smell something way, way across the room. So like poopy diaper, like 100 yards away, and she's like, hey, did Elijah, well, sorry, did Anna poop her pants? I, I don't want to call you out here with you in, in the service. You know, it's like, how in the world can you smell from that far away? And, and one of the last times it happened, I was like, you're pregnant. It was a clear sign. So sometimes you've come to faith, but you can't really pinpoint exactly when it happened. But you start looking at the signs and working backwards like, yeah, the Lord is changing me. And it's a beautiful picture of how God works in the gospel. The gospel begets new life. And this new life will man itself, manifest itself fundamentally in love. Conversion has a goal. Verse 122a says, having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. Now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, the command to love one another flows from the prior work of God's grace in Christ Jesus within us. It's important to note this, that, that the command, the imperative flows from the prior work of grace. We don't earn anything. It's, it's also important to note that even though God has worked marvelously in our hearts, he still has to command us to love. It's not like we're on autopilot. That's helpful as well. Like, if you ever feel like, why don't I, why is it hard to love? Why is it difficult? And it is sometimes difficult to love. Certain people you'll find are difficult to love. You might even find that I'm difficult to love. Hard to believe, I know. And some people will find hard to understand. But now in Christ, we have the ability and we are commanded to love earnestly. Again, I said in the introduction, love is grossly misunderstood. In this love, Peter is talking about, is preceded by and enabled by the gospel of Christ, resurrection to new life, renewed to the image of our creator God, a God of love. It's clear that this love flowing from God to us 
is flowing from God to us and then through us. Our love must be driven and directed and empowered by the great love with which our triune God has loved us in Christ. You have there on your, on your sermon outline, John 13, 34 through 35. You know, this passage here in First Timothy, or First Peter, this call to love one another is one of like 50 passages in the New Testament, these one another passages. But the mother of all one another passages is John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is ratcheting up the command that you may be familiar with from Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament in love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus isn't saying here, love your neighbor as yourself, is he? He's saying a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And how did he do this? How did Jesus love us? Well, he died for us. I explained it a second ago. He died for us. Jesus, the eternal son, left his throne. He left the realm of glory at the Father's side. He became a man and he went to the cross for us. In John three sixteen, it goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that used to be the most well-known Bible verse. I think now they say the most well-known Bible verse is out of Matthew 5, judge not lest you be judged. But, but John three sixteen used to be the most well-known verse. But when, but when John says that God so loved the world, He's not communicating that God was in heaven going, oh, the world is amazing. The world that I've made is amazing. No, the world in John, if you do a little study, is the big, bad, sinful, broken world living in rebellion to God, right? So this is an astounding statement. For God so loved rebels that he gave. You see, God's love for us in Christ, which is supposed to redefine our love for one another, is so very different from how we normally conceive of love. We normally think of love in terms of the inherent lovability of the object. When I began, or when I met and began to date my wife, Elizabeth, I could quickly recount a number of the lovely or lovable things about her. Beautiful eyes, amazing smile, uh, winsome personality. I like that she was athletic because I'm sort of athletic. So there's so many things. You just go on and on and on. 
The Bible tells us that God is love. God is also holy and righteous, but that God is love. And the reality of who our triune God is, is that from all eternity, God has been love. The Father has been loving the Son and the Spirit, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Are you following this a little bit? It's this infinitely glorious love triangle from all eternity. God is love and he creates and it, a world as the effect and the spillover of love his love, and then we rebel against him. And after sin and death and brokenness enter into his world through our rebellion, God promised in love salvation. This salvation we've been talking about the last many weeks. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's loving promises. So then, God's love for us in Christ is not focused on the intrinsic loveliness of its object. God loved the big bad world in sin. It's very different from how we love. God doesn't look at us and say, wow, Derek, your eyes, your hair, your winsome personality, I love you and I can't imagine eternity without you. That's not how it went down, no. He loves us in spite of who we are. He looks on us in our white hot rebellion against him, this big, bad, rebellious world. And in grace, he sets his affections upon us before the foundation of the world. And he sends his son rushing to the cross to redeem us and restore us to himself. That's God's love for us. And it's not based on our performance. And that is some of the best news that you'll ever hear, that God's love for you is not based on your performance. It's not based on anything that you've done. You can't do enough. You would never do enough. He loves you because he loves you. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 7, when he talks about how he elected and chose Israel, he said, it's not because you were more righteous, it's not because you were more numerous, it's because I loved you. You keep backing it up, I love you because I love you. That is rock solid. It's not performance driven. It's completely of his own volition, a decision in the very being of God to set his affection on us and love us. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you, our love one another. Did we deserve it? No. Should we withhold it? Do you ever find yourself doing that? Like, they don't really deserve my affection right now, so I'm gonna ice them. I'm gonna withhold that love. He commands us to love one another. You see, the command to love has an object, one another. And just like brotherly love in 22a, so here one another refers to other Christians. It doesn't mean that we as Christians don't love those outside of the church. We do, but this passage and 50 like it throughout the New Testament, they really mark out what it means for us to live out our lives in community together as the body of Christ. How we are to relate to one another. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, confess our sin to one another, exhort, teach, and admonish one another, encourage and build one another up, speak the truth to one another in love, consider, consider, like give premeditated thought how you might stir one another up to love and good deeds. 
You could literally translate that provoke, how you would provoke. When I think of provoking, I think of my kids and, and their premeditated thinking of how they can provoke one another to anger and fighting. But the call as Christians, we are to consider how we might provoke one another to love and good deeds. We're called to love one another earnestly. The idea is that of persevering, long faithfulness in the same direction. I don't know about you, but sometimes I want things to happen quick, quick, quick. And we all want a revolution, as one guy wrote, but nobody wants to do the dishes. You know, we want something to happen immediately and big, grand, boom, do it, God. But this is a call to just persevering love, grace, mercy, flowing from the Father above who's loved us in His Son, enabling us to love one another when it doesn't, when we don't feel like it. You'll see there on your outline, I want to just hammer home six application points on this love. And the first is that gospel-driven love is fundamentally a decision. It's a choice to do one another good in the gospel. Just as God's love for us was a decision, a choice, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and sent Jesus to the cross for us, so we must choose to love one another earnestly. We must decide to obey God's word. It's become a bit of a dirty word in our day, but there is some duty to this. I would say our call to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as as Christ loved us is delight but there's also duty to it. There's a command. There's a command. And that's not a bad thing, right? Sometimes you, you really, it's not as we've been talking about and Matt said, it's not this white knuckling, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's looking to the gospel. It's like, I don't feel like loving. It's okay, let me just kind of think through here how God loved me in Christ. Okay, yeah, I was, I was a rebel. I committed high treason against the king of the universe. He should have sent me to hell. Okay, yeah, I think I can, I think I can will myself here to, 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 to do something helpful. That's what it's talking about. Consider the gospel. Rethink again and again what God has done for you. And it's not always easy. I remember when Elizabeth and I were first married. I'm from Texas. You know, true to the stereotype, I had a pickup truck. I played college football, so I'm, I can lift stuff. So what happens in the church when you have a pickup and you're pretty strong? Every time somebody moved, I got the phone call. And a lot of times my attitude was good. It's like, sure, yeah. Yeah, no problem. But then there were times where I'm like, really? Seriously? Doesn't anybody else have a truck? Can't anybody else carry a a sleeper sofa? Come on, you know? And I would have to work my attitude, and how would I do that? Thinking back on Christ leaving his throne in glory, duty and delight. And sometimes the delight will catch up and surpass that duty, the willing yourself to do this. This is true, by the way, in marriage. Elizabeth experiences all the time having to deal with me. It's never hard for me to love you, sweetheart. Secondly, Valentine's Day is coming. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> gospel-driven love. Second, gospel-driven love is not a codependent love. We are called to love one another. We're not called to exact love from one another, Right? the responsibility is placed on you to love me and on me to love you, not on me to go, you know, I don't think you're loving me enough. 
you know, I sent you that card and didn't get a thank you. You know, I helped you move, but where were you when I, when I needed help? And I think if we're honest, we can all, maybe I'm like the worst sinner here, so I'm with Paul, but I think we can all struggle with that at times. But remember the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps, or I'm sorry, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs suffered. But we often have a scorecard, don't we? Like, man, all I've done for these people. Where's my love? But gospel-driven love is not a codependent love. We're not, we're not demanding reciprocity on our love going out. Three, you can't love like this in isolation. So I should have had a sweet commercial for our home groups queued up at this point, like boom! But I'm, I'm running behind on my technology. You can't love like this in isolation. Being a Christian means that you've been baptized into Christ. And like every time that the Greek word ekklesia is used in the New Testament, except for one or two times, it's talking about local expressions of the body of Christ. So it's not enough to just be a member of the universal body. The command and the demand and the, the, the whole understanding of scripture is that if you're in Christ, you ought to be a part of a particular expression of the body of Christ, covenanted to living out your faith with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the expectation. People are like, where does church membership come? It's all throughout scripture. The idea that we're members of one another, the idea of a covenant, the idea that we've been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's all through scripture. Metaphors that we're a family. God is our father, Jesus is our brother. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I mean, we, we haven't all had like the best experiences in our families growing up, but we're still part of that family. Hopefully you'll have a great experience in this family. But we're called to live as family, living in community, doing life together is a buzzword these days. And, and we, we, we live out the one another passages together as I went through quickly a moment ago. Fourth, living and loving as family can be messy. It, it often is messy. If our midweek groups are gonna go deeper than superficial Bible studies where we hide behind doctrine, knowledge about the Bible, if we're truly going to experience sincere or non-hypocritical brotherly love, then the guards have to come down, the walls have to come down, and it's going to get a little messy. Right? Confess your sins to one another. Love one another, forgive one another. All these these one another's that I, I think are fundamentally unpacking what it means for us to love one another very practically. But if we'll do our best to live out the command to love one another, your understanding of the gospel will grow significantly as will your love for Christ. I recently made a joking comment to someone here at Liberty um, who I've begun to get to know a bit, but I, I really hurt their feelings. Now, to their credit, they lovingly confronted me about it, giving me the opportunity to quickly apologize. Now, while what I said wasn't like this premeditated mean thing, I came to realize that my joking comment was actually me being very judgmental. I didn't understand something that the person said, and so I, I joked with them about it. 
And again, to their credit, they came to me quickly and graciously forgave me. And the whole process, right, they, they spoke truth to me in love. Like, that hurts. I meant what I said. The whole process led me to do some soul searching and repenting of, of judgmentalism in my life. Now, this thing could have gone a whole different way, right? They could have kept quiet. Like, they could have talked themselves out of saying, I'm hurt, you hurt me. They could have totally talked themselves out of it and said, it's not a big deal, it didn't really hurt my feelings. And then they stuff it. And then the, the, the offense becomes bitterness. Bitterness becomes hatred. And then, you know, the whole thing comes unraveled. Again, instead they quickly spoke truth to me in love. I was able to confess and apologize. They forgave me. I was able to repent of judgmentalism. Love one another. Confess our sins to one another. Forgive one another. If we're going to do life in community, we're going to hurt each other. We're going to even sin against each other. And we're going to be called in love to confess our sin to one another. You're going to be called in love to love that person who sinned against you and forgive them. The call to love one another isn't a call for us to be a perfect community, right? If Christ is going to be exalted in our midst, this, this has to take place. Fifthly, gospel-driven love is love seeking understanding. 1 Peter 3, we'll get to in some weeks, speaks of husbands. It's a command for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Now, if you're married, you probably don't need a whole lot of explanation there, right? At least my experience has been that my wife and myself can be talking and be talking like this, right? Like, I don't understand what she's saying. She's speaking English, and I'm speaking English, but there's not a connection, and, 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 and I'm just really struggling. And Peter ratchets it up. Matt will get to that or somebody will get to that soon. But Peter ratchets it up and says, if you don't live with your wife, husbands, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, God's not going to hear your prayers. Okay, that'll get your attention. What's true in marriage is true all throughout the body of Christ. In fact, my, my stupid joke a few weeks back was a failure to understand and a failure to understand is a failure to really love the other person and to really fight for understanding. Like you may not get it, but you're trying to wrap your head around it. How is that so? And this is constantly going on, at least for me, in marriage. So I'm learning this. Most, I, I find most fights, the, the, the marriage counseling that I've done with people, most fights or, or couples that finally are seeking help and they're like on the brink of divorce, when you trace it all back, it wasn't fundamentally sin that got the whole thing going, but misunderstanding, a failure to love, a failure to really understand each other. A failure to fight to understand the other and love is usually at the heart. And the bottom line is we're relationally lazy, right? And that leads me to the sixth application point. Loving one another earnestly is most beautiful when it's brothers and sisters you would not have gotten on with easily before Christ. That's, again, another long statement. 
Loving one another earnestly is most beautiful when it's brothers and sisters you would not have gotten on with easily before Christ. That is to say, it's brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that you would have never hung out with before you became a Christian. Before I became a Christian at the age of 19, first year of university, if you weren't an American football player, a baseball player, or a girl who liked American football players or baseball players, we would not have hung out. It's just how, it's just how it was. And then God graciously converted me, and I began to experience the love of the brethren with people that were very different from me, and it was glorious because it was a ringing endorsement of the faith that I had professed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There had been something that had taken place in my heart. I knew I loved Jesus because I loved his people. And that's really, that's the whole book of 1 John. But this is difficult. But it's a critical thing in a, in a church like Liberty where we have so many different nations, so many different ethnicities as a part of this church. You can be drawn to just kind of hang out with the brothers and sisters that are most like you, that are easiest to talk with. But the love of God in Christ compels us to pursue everyone. The gospel radically reorients us to live out this kingdom ethic of love, to make the decision again and again and again to do one another good in the gospel. That's, that's true love. Jesus made it clear in John 13, 34 through 35 that this is our chief apologetic to a needy and lost world, our love for one another. Our love for one another is the display of the gospel to a world looking for love in all the wrong places. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ or you're not sure whether, whether that seed has been sown in your heart and you're starting to see change and you'd like to chat, if you'd like to talk more, there are people with Ask Me tabs that will be at the back uh, praying. I'll be at the back as well if, if you want to ask me any questions about the sermon or, or, uh, or anything else. Let's, let's pray and then I'll turn it over to Matt. Father, we want to thank you for the gospel. Lord, we, we all do have this, this desire to love, to be loved, and yet we see how it's broken. We see how we turn it in on ourselves, and we thank you that you, you came to rescue us from us, to rescue us from our sin, to restore us to you, to enable us to love as you love and have love from all eternity. And Lord, may we, by your grace and for your glory, be a community that displays the gospel and our love for one another, that people might come in on a Sunday morning or come to a midweek group and just see there's something different and see on display your gospel at work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.